Welcome to episode 205 of Control the Controllables. And I apologise for those who are regular listeners that we haven't been with you for the last three or four weeks. And I will get to that in a minute, but a big welcome to our new listeners, to anyone that's just come across Control the Controllables podcast. We love having you with us. We hope you enjoy your first episode and then you've got another 204 to make your way through and I promise they will have you in tears, they'll have you laughing, they will have you running around looking for that notepad to scribble down the pieces of information and the gems that have been told. And as for the last three or four weeks, I did take my equipment with me. I've been in the WTA finals in Cancun and then come back, and unfortunately, my mum is not doing so well, so I flew back to England as well to see her and the family, and Cancun, let's start there, because it was talked about everywhere, the WTA Finals 2023. Now, I'm a person who's chosen to live life with gratitude, so I find it really hard to speak too negatively, especially with everything that is going on in the world right now. I find it hard to think that it's a bad thing and a, a difficult experience to be sitting on a beach eating lobster tacos and maybe waiting out a rain break uh, before the girls, Gabby Dabrowski and Erin Routliff, who had a fantastic end to the year. And then Gabby's gone on and also helped Canada win the Billie Jean King Cup. So on a personal level, that's been very exciting. But as for my, I guess, couple of serious points on the WTA, I don't think they'll ever play it again outside at that time of year. You know, that was challenging for the players. Was the court as bad as everyone says? No, I don't think it was, but it's not perfect for what it should be when we look at the ATP finals in Turin. So until they get a multi-year deal the WCA in a place where they can really make it the special event that it is, then I think they will continue to have challenges. But I'm certainly very grateful for the tournament and all of the hard-working people of Mexico and Cancun that put on a great event. Now that moves us into today's guest, Patricia He. Now, Patricia was a top 30 singles player. She was somebody who has an incredible story. You know, when we talk about resilience, when we talk about challenges to overcome, there's almost no bigger challenges than she did. And I would fully recommend wherever you are, you sit back and you enjoy this because at times your mouth will be open in astonishment and it, how Patricia has used that to have success on the court and now off court as a coach, as a mental coach and also as a parent is is a truly astounding story and I'm so happy to be sharing this with you. Let me pass you over to Patricia He. Patricia He, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Uh, making amends, just as you know, we just got back at three in the morning. Uh, so my daughter lost in the semis yesterday. She was unfortunately was second match on after 12 o'clock. I was praying for the first match. So if she was out, then we could get on the road. But as is such, uh, so she was done whatever time. And I said, okay, let's go shower up and we get get on the road and look forward to 10 hours drive back home. And this is your daughter who is in her 20s? 
Yes, 23. Uh, she just graduated from the Ohio State University. She was on the on the team there. Uh, she graduated in May and is now making the tour a full-time job. Amazing. So tennis, tennis parents out there, these long drives and these long days at tennis centers around the world don't stop after the junior years. You know, you've still you've got to strap in, strap in for the rider. Huh? It's trapping for the ride. And you know what? It is 10 hours. Yes, we could have taken a flight, but I also have a son who plays. So you have to take about the, think about budgeting. You know, it would be luxury to fly, but uh, driving saves a lot of money for us. And a lot of quality mother-daughter time, I'm sure. Oh, I tell you what, though, that is the time because it's relaxing in the car. Um, I used to dread long distance driving because I can't wait to, you know, to get to it. But, but then since pandemic hits, I find that the only time I can slow down are at two places. One is long distance driving. The other one, believe it or not, is at the doctor's office. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two places where I can actually slow down enough and reflect on things. And uh, and also it helps that my daughter can drive now to share the driving. That is, well, I, I have two. Mine, I'm, I'm with you. Long drives I like. And the other one for me is the hairdressers. You know, when I get to oh. sit in, I get to sit in that seat. It's only, I don't have very long hair, so it doesn't take long. But that 15, 20 minutes... I don't remember the last time that I didn't fall asleep when I was having my hair cut, uh, which maybe says something about uh, about my life that I need to slow oh, down a little bit more. What a brave man to fall asleep <laughs> getting your hair done. And I'm sure there's some men out there who's totally jealous of you. At least you have hair. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And Patricia, the, the way that we go at Control the Controllables, it's I always like to jump into people's stories, their their life, because ultimately that's what shapes us you know and and we get into starting tennis and i want to jump into that as well but something the more that i've looked into your life as long as as long as the internet <laughs> is accurate which it might not always be um the under my understanding is you started in quite a traumatic fashion age six as you had to had to flee from Cambodia, where you were, where you were born, the Vietnam War had started, and and you had a big journey that you had to make, and eventually you ended up in Hong Kong. So, I guess a double a double sided question, if you don't mind me asking, is one: what do you remember of that time? And two: how has that shaped or played a role in shaping the mentality that took you to be? a singles high of 28 in the world. It's taken you to being a coach. It's taken you to being a mental coach, a, a tennis parent, all of the all of the things that you've had in your life. That is actually quite accurate what you just said about Cambodia. So um, interesting story. My dad was my coach, by the way. Um, he played at Davis Cup for Hong Kong and Davis Cup for Cambodia before we left Cambodia. So his brother at the time worked for, uh, was a right-hand man of Sihanouk. That's the king of Cambodia. Okay. And there was, um, you know, unsettling coming into the country. And, um, and he told my dad, uh, you know, it's time to take your family out of there because it's going to be unsafe. So they, 
my dad took the team. He was a captain of the Davis Cup, and I forgot where they were playing outside of Cambodia. So he told them that after the event was done, he was going to meet up with my mom in in Hong Kong for a vacation, and mm -hmm. nobody knew what he was doing except him and my mom because that was his last time in Cambodia. So he couldn't even say goodbye to his family because they would have known. So he left with a suitcase and not very much money. So he went to after it was done. He went to Hong Kong, and my mom then went to Hong Kong to meet up with him just to plan out where to live and and get sponsor. They have to get their sponsors to be able to live in Hong Kong legally. So once they found everything, all the uh, all the, what they needed, my mom flew back to Cambodia to take me out, and I was. Six. I was exactly six years old. I have a sister as well who was three years younger than me. So at the time, because I was young, I traveled with my mom. That's how it was at the time. I didn't have my own passport, so I was on my mom's passport. And um, you needed an exit visa okay. to every country you go to. So they um, didn't see my dad for a long time. When you're in Cambodia in in the sports, people keep track of you. So they were suspicious of my dad. Um, labeled him as a spy. So they wow. detained. Yeah, they kept my mom's passport for a few months. They refused to give her a visa. My mom pursued. Six months later, they still were not giving it to her. So my grandmother went to the black market and got her a uh, a fake passport, and the the a fake passport that she was Thai. Because right, okay. the yeah the routing of course I didn't know all of this until later the routing was that my mom was to take me to the border um, Cambodia slash you know Thai border meet up with the man who gave us the black passport that to be her fake husband and then to take us across the the Thai border to fly get on the flight to Hong Kong. And it was supposed to be a no-brainer. However, when we got on the bus in Cambodia, we were stopped in a village, and we had to go on foot and stayed in some rice field village to these uh, strangers we didn't know. And I remember specifically because it was traumatizing because a child can definitely feel the parents' fear. Yeah. And I definitely because I and I actually confirmed it with my mom because it's been a long time. It wasn't like just yesterday, um, and she she was pretty surprised that I I was very accurate in describing the situation. So and when we were walking through the fields, which seemed like hundreds of kilometers, my mom had to carry me on a piggy ride because I I was exhausted. And we walked through the rice field. And she knocked on some people's doors. They took us in, and the next day uh, we had to walk back to a meeting point with the with the man. And I don't know how she knew the the meeting point, so that we had to hide behind a bush so the man can walk to the border to pay off the guard to wow. take us over. Yeah. So he took us over the border. Uh, we walked on foot, went across the border, um, and the next day we went to the airport. And he took he taught my mom a few. Thai words in case she was interrogated. So we went through immigration and she didn't pass uh, the test, and we were detained at the uh, police station because they were suspicious of the fake passport. They they read it. They saw it was a fake passport. 
So we were detained for hours. Um, the second traumatized event was I fell asleep on the couch while my mom was being interrogated. I woke up, couldn't find my mom. Oh my anyway, goodness. in the police station. And I am crying hysterically. And this police came and was yelling at me, you know, stop crying. Your mother left you. And I cried even more. Right. I, I So my mom, she must have heard me crying because she dashed through the, the door. Um, so the deal was that she made a deal with the interrogator to give up the name of the person that made the fake passport. Then she was free to go. Um, they went to the address that she knew it was emptied out, um, but they held up their, their side of the bargain. They put us on the flight to go to oh, Hong wow. Kong. Yeah, they kept up their flight because it was address and they saw, I guess they saw who was living there and, and so forth. So at, the, at that time, there was one flight from Cambodia to Hong Kong once a day. That was it. From what I learned um, that it took a month before we actually made it to Hong Kong because my dad literally went to the airport every night for our arrival and we never came and he gave up and of course in those days we didn't have cell phones yeah that right? was the thing yeah yeah we did there was no communications he gave up and he definitely could not fax there was no one to fax so um my dad gave up going to the airport and we showed up and i to this day so that was 40 42 years ago 52 years ago right so and, how did you find your dad? Well, my mama had the address because right. remember okay. when they went ahead of time, they found a place to live. So yeah. she had that address. So we showed up and he was renting this one bedroom from this sweet, nice old lady. It was a two bedroom apartment and he rented that one room. And uh, yeah, he was he was having dinner when we showed up. And what's your memory of that when you showed up and how your dad was when you arrived? He, he, he was, he, he was, it, this is exactly what you see in the movie. Somebody who has lost their family members for a long time and they see them again and his jaw just dropped. He was in the middle, in the middle of putting food in his mouth. And yeah, and of course I didn't recognize, I didn't know my dad, by the way, because I, my okay. dad traveled so much when I was born. When I was born, my dad was playing tournaments in Shanghai, and my nickname actually is Shanghai. My mom didn't know how to, what to name me. So yeah, so I never knew my dad growing up until I went to Hong Kong. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and when you're telling that story, Patricia, it, it hits me, and, and we'll get to this later in the conversation, because... You obviously, you're a mental coach now. You know, you're working on the performance side of, of, of the sport. And I know, but psychology is such a big part of life now, you know, and, and, and I guess it's come to the forefront a little bit more. Yeah. Um, whereas back in those days, it wasn't it wasn't quite as as out there. You know, it was a little bit of kind of suck it up and deal with it type of right. type of scenario. As you're telling that story. You're telling it in such a matter of fact way. At, at what point uh, uh, did you, or have you been able to almost compartmentalize, accept? Have you worked on that? Is that work that you've gone through through your life, or is that purely just time? And that's what it is. And this is how life has gone. And now I can almost look back at it 
in in that sort of way, in almost a separated way. Uh, you know, it's really interesting with your question because when I was on tour, um, they did an article on me and they called me a survivor, right? And we know that situations shape us one way or another. Yep. Right. And even at six and a half years old, um, as I said before, you feel your your parents fear or whoever your caretaker is. Right. And the fact that my mother was so brave, she was she had. Oh, by the way, she had to leave my sister behind because she knew she was anticipating the rough you know i'm I'm saying it matter of fact like you said we went on foot for miles and hours and hours and it was raining and we had to go in the bus you know full of strangers and live in strangers house and she knew the 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 road the journey was going to be treacherous um and i could feel her while she was scared but she was also dealing with the situation it was a life and death situation right and it it, it's, it made an impression in your mind in your brain and you remember things like that and with what i do now and and i mention to parents all the time especially parents with young athletes it's not what you say it's what you do because yeah. children can feel that vibration and i believe in aura vibration of the self so much just because of my personal experience so to a certain degree when i was competing i can always feel that part of me where i'm almost like feeling i'm in danger i'm being threatened yeah. and then that sturdiness that resiliency and it must have come from that time where I felt both the fear and the resiliency and, and desperation, how to survive, that was just instill in me. It's, it's just in me. I, I don't I, know if that makes sense. It, no, no, it absolutely does. And, and I think the other thing that jumps into me on that is, is also what a player feels from a coach. I, I think you can, players obviously feel that from a parent even more so, but at the side of the court or even a traveling coach, how how they are in all aspects, the player is taking strength or not from the coach at, at, at all times as well, without words being said. And that, that, that would be something I'm a massive believer on. And it's sometimes hard to articulate that because it, it can yes. it can sound a little bit fluffy, can't it? It can sound as if it's it's an intangible. It's not something you can touch, but I'm a massive believer in the impact a coach or people in coaches' boxes can have without it necessarily being the words that they say. 100%. Um, personal experience. Um, you know, one, where was I? I was at Wimbledon, I think I was playing or something. And it was so nervy. And my, I looked over, you know, like almost, I didn't look over a lot to my coach, but I, I certainly at times when I needed that strength and my coach was, I could feel his, his uh, nervousness and it def- and, yeah, and stress and definitely mm-hmm. didn't help things. So after the match, I said to my coach and I said, listen, I need you to be calm for me because yeah. what I can feel you. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be out there, you know, just don't, don't watch because I need you to be calm. Now, now that I'm a parent, and if you ask my kids, they will say I smile a lot watching them from the side. I do that on purpose, right? 
I do that on purpose, but I, I do that on purpose not to fake it, but I really believe in it because when you're out on the court, whether you're starting at competing or the ATP tour or WJ, it doesn't matter. Com competition is unnatural, yep. right? It's uneasy. So I make a point of staying calm, not just because of what I do, but it is helping the players because I know what it feels like when you, the coach is stressed out. So I feel calm and I put a smile on my face, appreciating points because that is how I teach my kids. You yeah. know, it's really, it's, it, it, they all want to win. Who goes to compete and say, I'm going to lose? Everybody yeah. wants to win. There's only one winner. <laughs> at the end of each match. So it's really irrelevant what they want, but what really the focus is, what are you gonna do with this moments on the, yeah. on the court? Um, when I was playing, I played Monica Sellis in Montreal. And I don't, I, I never used to read articles on myself or watch myself play just because I, I didn't want to do with that. I just happened to watch, I had a really good match with Monica who was ranked one at the time. And we went to three sets and it's in Montreal. I was already in, in Canada, so it's a big yeah. deal. They, the camera moved to her dad. Oh, her dad was smiling, applauding, good points. And right, we were okay. in the third set. Right then and there, I decided that's who I want to be like if, I, if my kids ever play. Yeah, yeah. And, to, and that's, that's who I mimic to this day. Amazing. Such a good story. And I have to ask the question, what as a parent what are you feeling inside so so when you and you've got two kids i believe that play so mm -hmm. and, and have gone through a journey to be to play to a high level so you've obviously you've got a lot of experience as a tennis parent now it's one thing to smile and be able yeah. to to br bring that across and i guess that's a skill that it doesn't come across fakely as well because mm -hmm. players can smell that a mile off mm -hmm. <laughs> and then be like don't be giving me that stupid face <laughs> You know, but yeah. what are you feeling inside? Are you feeling the stress and the tension of you managed to compartmentalize work on that to the point that actually you're so process driven? It's all it's all good. Uh, OK, at the forefront, um, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be very honest is at the end of the match, they want to win. You want to yep. win. I mean, let's let's just be honest, right? And it's always going through my head, how am I going to help him or her to get squeeze that W? Yep. All right. Um, okay. He's, he's tight. Then I will go, what would I do when I'm tight? I need to relax. So I literally will transform, if, if you will. I will transform myself. I'm relaxed. Okay. You know, stay relaxed. Breathe. You can oh. do this. You can do this. So you know that that sending the vibes back yeah. on the court i believe in that i right? do yeah i do yeah yeah or like think you know if, if they're not playing so smart <laughs> they work very hard but they're not playing too smart it's tactical and then i'll be like okay use your slice variations you can do this variation so i literally will do do like a yeah. mantra you know think through things so i feel and that goes the same with the players if I happen to watch them on stream, because when I work with players as well, yeah. when and I would just send vibes over. Um, or when I'm going on the court, this is really kind of quite cool. Um, you know, they'll be on the court and, and I'm on the court with them. I usually don't 
I, I give them space to make the errors. So let's say serve, right? Yep. The wide serve, they're not quite getting it. I don't jump in right away. Oh, get the toss up higher, left, right, whatever. Yep. I would just think about it. Like yep. higher, reach up, use your legs and they'll do it. Yeah, I can't tell you so many times they've they just corrected themselves. And do you think that's, I think a really important thing you've said there is giving someone the space to do it mm. as well. You know, that, that uh, it's something I, I don't think as coaches we do enough I, I, and as parents actually. And you know what, one of my, um, one of my favorite analogies that I like to use is this whole concept of, of the and we're all we're all lazy now because we've all got the sat, satellite navigation systems and as you head out on a complex journey wherever you're going you use the sat nav and then you do it the next day and the next day but if i took the sat nav away in two weeks you actually would not be able to find your own way there whereas if if you struggle with that space and using a map and finding a way on the first day it's now locked in. You now own that. You own that ability to be able to do it. And it's something I've certainly tried to then take into my coaching is, is, is that concept. If you've got the space, I know that's slightly different to what you're saying with the energy and the vibe, but if you've got that space for them to be able to work through it themselves, then it sticks a little bit more. And it's something that they then have on lockdown that they're able to recall in the big moments rather than the reliance of the coach or reliance of the satnav. Absolutely. And I, you know, I hear so many comments from uh, coaches where they feel like the, the players are soft. Yep. Right. These days. And I really think that players are given way, way, way too much information and they yep. can't think for themselves in order to play smarter, in order to be able to think for yourself, you need to have situations to deal with so yeah. that you can come up with the solutions, uh, you know, and I, through my work, whether it's on the court with my kids or my work um, with the players, and I get, actually, I get really nervous if they say everything is great. Yeah. Because from personal experience, when you go out there, 99% of the time is everything is going wrong. Yeah. So, you know, so, and I was like, okay, you have a match next week or you have a match tomorrow and you're feeling great. And, and I want to clarify this. It's not like you're, you're being negative, but you cannot be naive to think mm. that everything is great because the opponent's job is to make your life miserable, yeah. <laughs> to create your problem. So you better be having a, a day where you are, uh, you, you have to find ways you struggle, yep. right? You, you struggle. It's like going in the gym. If you, if you're just using the weights that you're comfortable with, you're not going to get strong. Nope. You got to use heavier weights to push you. And that's that mind stuff, you know, competing comes in. It's understanding that bad days are good days for you in training. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, again, I couldn't agree more. Patricia, before, before I move on, if I was listening to this right now, you've got me. You got me with your your first with your story. I'm in. I'm locked in. But but I would have a question, and I think anybody listening right now will have a question and is frustrated. And I hope you don't mind me asking this question. What happened to your sister? Oh, not at all. You know what? I love questions. My sister, um, she 
was stuck in Cambodia because a week after we left, the border was closed. No one was allowed in or out of Cambodia at the time. She had to flee to Vietnam on foot with our relatives. My grandfather was a doctor and he was, he was killed because the, fir the first to go are the educated people, right? Mm -hmm. And so she left with my grandmother, was under my grandmother's care um, at the refugees. They, they went to the refugees camp. She at the time was three years old. We had no knowledge whether they were alive or not because there was absolutely no communications. So we just assumed that everyone was killed. That's how it was. Um, I was young. I didn't, I kind of knew like this award, but I'm like, why is my sister not here? My mom was distressed all the time, um, rightly so, right? Uh, so we lost contact for nine years. Nine years. So when nine years later, I started playing, I was 15, 16, and I, my, my dad took me to Junior Wimbledon. And you know how crowded it is at Wimbledon. I mean, yeah. you, you bump into, he literally bumped into a, um, uh, a classmate, a classmate of all people who actually was fortunate enough to leave before the whole war thing started. And he was working for Prince, Prince George of, of um, Hanover, Hanover in Germany. And Prince George loved tennis. So we got to meet him at Wimbledon. He somehow struck, he really liked my dad. And he said, if there was, and then my dad started talking about the family and so forth. And Prince George said, well, if you ever need help, if you need help getting your daughter out of Cambodia or Vietnam, let him know. And he did. He went and got my sister out uh, when my no sister way. was 12 years old. Yeah, he, he did the whole, wow. yeah, he did the whole documentation thing. And the reason that we knew they were alive because when they were settled in Vietnam out of the refugees camp, they sent a fax, a telegram to the house, to the apartment that my dad was in. And that's how we knew they were alive. And uh, you can just imagine as parents, right? Where you think your child was killed and that was unbelievable. So yeah, so she came and we all went to greet her um, at the airport thinking this 12 year old would be, you know, malnutrition, maybe emotionally scarred, just not in great shape. She, they sent us a photo of her and uh, we picked her up and she was this chubby little kid. And we were like, what? <laughs> so what had happened was at camp, um, the, the, at camp, they would pick out these cute kids and teach them to dance as entertainers and that's how they get fed so much my, my sister was one of those lucky <clears throat> children got picked was taught to entertain with what you know the, the 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 soldiers whatever she to this day i don't know how much harm was done to her but i know she was emotionally scarred because um she struggled with the sight of men for a very very long time yeah. Her herself, we got her checked out. Her herself was not physically harmed, but she must have seen things and she never wanted to talk about it um, to this day. Yeah, but yeah. she, you know, um, after many, many years with, with help, she was able to function normally.
And to my parents' credit, um, they, you know, they, we all worked very, very hard in making her as part of the family. It took work. Yeah. It, it took work. Uh, definitely, it took a lot, a lot of work from, from my dad. Yeah. I mean, we're talking that when my dad is speaking with my sister, she would look the other way, like literally look the other way, like, yeah. don't talk to me type of thing. And it was very hurtful, of course, as a father, as yeah. you know, you're, you're being a dad, is the, your little child just, just, just pretending you don't exist. So, um, but she recovered, got married, has kids. Yeah. yeah. Great. And how's your relationship with her? Um, n- not as much as I like it to be closer. She lives out West okay. um, and I travel all the time. And, and I, you know, that's, that's one thing that I was not able to uh, get closer um, because I got a lot of attention through my tennis when yeah. I was living in Hong Kong at the time. And that was not my wrongdoing. I, I couldn't help it. Um, and yeah. I tried as I might, it, I could never get close. Okay. Yeah. And it's sad. And, you know, yeah. I, I always wanted to be close to my yeah, yeah. siblings, you know, but uh, we move on. We have our life yeah. to live and it's okay. She's safe and she's healthy. Good. And that's great. And thank you so much for your honesty on that. I, I you know, like I said, for me, that, when I heard your story, that was an important part of the story for me, you know, and, and it does take me into what I want to talk about next, which is, I guess, when you were first on a world terms seen as someone in, in the tennis world in the biggest tournament in the world at Wimbledon, I, I, I wasn't expecting to get that story in terms of, in terms <laughs> of what happened at Wimbledon, but, I, I think that's probably how a, a lot of families can relate as well. Certainly myself, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got brothers and sisters and, and it's quite unnatural. You know, I was the one that so much resource went into so much travel, so much of the parents time, so much of this. And you put on a bit of a pedestal and, you know, all of, all of those bits and, 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 that there is a lot of collateral damage that can potentially come with that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's quite often not talked about or discussed, you know, and whereas I, I think it does happen in, in a lot of families, um, but not just that you were going to play the, the biggest junior tournament or the biggest tournament in the world as a junior from a country that hadn't traditionally had success at at, at such events. Yeah. Um, and again, players I've worked with from smaller countries, some can handle it, some can't, but it, it definitely feels you're carrying a bigger load on the shoulders than I had the Czech Republic uh, performance director on a few weeks ago. And it's like, well, if you're 20 in the world, who are you? You know, because right. there's 15 people ahead of you, but being from Hong Kong or representing Hong Kong and going to Wimbledon and then having the success that you had at Wimbledon, I believe winning the doubles event there. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that was my last year in the juniors. That was last year juniors. How, how, how was that for you, you know, carrying such a, such a weight of, of a country and being this, being this, somebody i guess it's at such a young age with your tennis um i didn't feel the pressure funny enough it it, it wasn't i i attribute that to my the my parents the way they brought me up 
um, you know, it's um, my my dad obviously was very value oriented. It was about family, about you know being humble uh, and working hard. So that was what he taught me. Was this, if you want anything, it's about working hard. Um, my mother taught me was you know you put your sight to something, you can do it. What you believe to be true you're going to get it, get it done. So that's how, and they never did put, they never put pressure on me to turn in pro or anything I wanted to do with tennis. But the fact that um, how I came to be, how my parents kept me on my feet really is, <laughs> um, I guess I was 13 or even, yeah, 12 or 13 years old. Then that was my first time got um, exposure of traveling internationally to the US uh, to Canada, sorry, to Canada. So okay. the Hong Kong TA at the time brought four players, three boys and one girl I was the only girl. So, so th yeah, three boys and one girl and we made this Canadian tour. I cannot remember where it was. But I won so many trophies, they put me in 16s and 18s. And I was I think I was 13 at the time, I think. And I won singles, doubles, singles, doubles of the entire tour. And I remembered I had to call home, collect call home if I could buy a suitcase. And my mother said, well, why do you need a suitcase? I'm like, well, for all the trophies I'm trophies. bringing home. <laughs> so I bring the trophies home. And of course, um, like you said, th there was no athletes, no tennis players at the time. So it was a big deal. So yeah. I remembered arrive and totally caught me by surprise. I, we got to the airport and the media, the, the reporters, it, it was full. Wow. It was, I mean, it was packed and I was rushed to this room, interview, blah, 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 whatever. Okay. Think the whole thing shebang was over. We go home the next day. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, my dad was renting because he didn't have money. He was renting this one bedroom of these two bedrooms. Later on, when he got enough money, he rented this one bedroom apartment, the whole apartment. We didn't have washer and dryer. He did not believe in washer and dryer. So the next day I had washing duty. You, you know, this old film with a washboard thing. Yeah. Okay. So I had to do that over the tub. Okay, yeah. that was his way of grounding me. I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't afford to buy wash and dryer. It was like go wash. The hardest thing about washing these things are the towels. Do you know how heavy towels are when they're wet? <laughs> so here I am, you know, washing them and I had to use, um, put them on the liner, right? And that's his way of grounding me. So I never felt the pressure. It was their way of saying, hey, tennis is something you did. It's something is something you do. It's not who you are. So mm -hmm. my identity never got lost. And my dad always, always say, remember who you are, where you come from. Very good. And two questions. You're getting my brain ticking a lot, Patricia, which I love, you know, so I'm, I'm okay. absolutely loving this. <laughs> we hear a lot in the, in the tennis world, people making excuses. Yeah, so it's we love an excuse, to, you know, and it's 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 often we we hear I'm in the wrong squads, I'm not playing with good enough players, mm -hmm. we can't do these things, not getting enough wild card, blah blah blah, not getting. Mm -hmm. Now, you're taking your story on board. 
you're you're training in a country where there's not a whole lot of tennis players. You know, you obviously significantly better than most of the players, if not all, that are around. Um, you're not coming from a money background. So so how does your tennis go from just starting to play tennis to now being someone who was playing the biggest junior tournaments in the world and being one of the best juniors in the world. Uh, you know, how, how were you able to do that? And I guess then linking that back into, if you want it bad enough, you can find a way of doing it type of mentality. I really think parents have a lot to do with the upbringing. I, I really do. You know what? Kids are kids. You know, they, they're going to whine. They're going to complain. They're going to want more, whichever. But if the parents, you know, understand that everyone has their own journey. And if you can just step out of the way and let your kids do the work needs to be done and not come to the rescue so soon, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'll give you a story of how I came about with my tennis in Hong Kong. It was not forced upon me where I feel a lot of the kids are forced upon them to play. Yeah. So how I started with tennis was my, my dad found this public place uh, to teach. Then the public place had 20 courts. You had to book uh, one hour per person for the week in advance. So he did he gave up competing because he had to earn money to to support his family uh i got there uh no surprise at uh soon after i got there i had to wake up at the wee hour of the morning we're talking 4 30 a.m 5 a.m to stand in line at this public place to book a court not even for me it was (laughs) for my dad to teach so my mom had to be there my dad and me three hours is what he had for the week, like the following week. And we had to do that every day. I had to do that every day. That was before school, right? Guess what happens when that day rains? That's it. There's no like, oh, rebooking. You lose those courts. So that's what I was faced with. And then after school, I'll hang out with, because we're tight knitted family, I hang out, I sit on the bench when my dad was coaching, and then I pick up a racket and bounce it around. And that's how I was introduced to tennis. So, you know, excuses is for the week. Yeah. Right. Blaming is for the week. Absolutely. Right. Wild cards. You you know, I, I grew up. Okay. So now I'm at my age. I went through three federations, the Hong Kong Association, the United States and Canada. Right. They're just there as supplement. They're not supposed to be. You know, you're not supposed to like lean on them for everything for your success. Um, And that's where the parents and if I may be bold and I probably am making a lot of enemies after this, (laughs) I'm just saying mothers play a very important role in the kids because fathers, they, they work right. And the mothers spend a lot of time with the children, right? Moms are so resilient because we have to do so many things. We have to wear so many hats. So if if parents, mothers can be just to use your strength to help have your child, your strength of being resilient, your strength of being um, lots of energy and solving problems, those are unique values, yep. right? And if you can somehow help the ch- your child to embark on that, embrace those qualities, 
that will go, that will serve them way, way more on the court than tell them them how to hit a forehand and backhand when that's the job of the coach anyways. Very good. And your story of fleeing a country and of spending years apart from family and of, you know, big things big things, big, big, big things. Now, you know, I, I spoke to Andy Murray recently and Andy's story, uh, uh, you know, he, he was in the school in Dumblain when, when the, the massacre happened, you know, the big, the big shooting. Then just after that, then his parents split up and that was a big trauma. Then he's, his brother who he's very close to left to another tennis academy. And the question I asked him is, it feels like it doesn't have to happen, of course, but a lot of successful people come from some trauma or something mm-hmm. that's, and, and and the words that for me that I, I certainly find hard as a parent, actually, but also as a coach is how do you artificially create situations? Because true resilience and true grit and, that ability to go, well, actually, I'm hitting a fluffy tennis ball over the net, a fluffy yellow tennis ball over the net. I've just come from this, you know, like that, that ain't going to affect me. <laughs> There's a lot of kids, and, and I include my children in this, they haven't touched wood, and I'm pleased as a parent they haven't. They haven't dealt with that much hardship. So how do how do we artificially create those systems and those those situations that are gonna that are gonna help build the resilience that is needed. I'm not just talking about on the tennis court here. I'm talking about in life, right? You know, you have to be pretty resilient in life. You know, is that that must be something that you've thought about or come across? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, that comes up uh, a lot. Um... I believe podcasts like yours bringing to the attention, parents need to um, feel, they need to feel it's okay. In my, in, in my training with the parents, and I said, look, find a program, do your research, right? About the coaches, the, the credibility, meaning that they're safe people, <laughs> right? Yeah. Once you've determined that these are solid coaches, get out of the way because the coaches, the coaches need to do the work. As coaches, we're always constantly pushing the players to, to, to do things outside of their box, outside of their comfort zone in order to grow. And they'll be doing drills on the court. They'll be doing um, learning skills that are outside of, of the comfort zone. And then you get the other side for the parents. Well, my child needs to play with a better player. And I have a story for you where um, I'm not comfortable in bringing the name because uh, this came on, you know, with with in this conversation because she might not want to be exposed. So let's just say this player worked with us and she was ranked um, in the 200 sum on the WTA, yeah. right? We moved away from South Carolina to Georgia and she went off to USTA. Her ranking kept plummeting. Eight months later, I may have gotten these dates wrong, but many months later, her, she, her ranking plummeted. She called my husband. Can I come back to train with you? And we are just starting our new academy in Georgia. My husband says, well, we don't have players at your caliber. We only have an 11 and 12 year old, which were our kids. And this player goes, I'm coming, right? So she comes, 
she's training with this 11, 12 year old, her ranking, her level of play started taking back shape and she started doing well again, <laughs> mind you, this 11 and 12 year olds were, were very focused. We're not talking about, you know, not just normal 11, but obviously if they play set, she will kill them. Oh, and no, in no time, but they could hang in the drills with her. Yeah. So how do you explain that? That's because this player wants to make it happen. I have come across so many, but it's such a disillusion thinking players make players better. Players don't make players better. They, yeah. you know, coaches, good coaching make players better. It's an education. And, and, and I would imagine in every single academy tennis club in the world, it's the number one question. Like me, I, I'm the director of Soto Tennis Academy, academy I set up 14 years ago. I would say I feel that question most days. Most days. Yeah, of, yeah. of sort of sorts. Yep. You know. And you know, I would I would say it's 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 also I would say though, quite a lot of coaches also I feel that question from coaches as well. And you know, I, I a big saying we have at the academy is it starts with us, you know, and I think coaches have a duty as well to to get that right, you know, to get that right because it's it's something that yeah it's it's a problem right it's a in, in an individual sport it's 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 right. always it's always a problem for somebody you know yeah. so uh so so then it brings entitlement it brings all oh. the wrong energies it brings it brings all of the wrong energies yeah, absolutely if i may share this uh this really kind of funny um story with you um, so as I mentioned, we were at the club and uh, I was doing quite well, uh, 11 years old. Uh, members didn't want to play with me anymore because they didn't want to lose right, you know, okay. the, the, the men's whatever. So my dad uh, couldn't find anyone to play me matches because I needed to practice matches. My godfather, who was a hacker, <laughs> yeah, but he knew how to keep score. He knew how to play somewhat, right? But he, he was a hacker, right? And he would play with me and he would beat me in the beginning. And I and eventually, soon after, I beat him, and it was the most boring thing. Then it was so boring because you know I'm 11 year old playing a 40 some. When you're 11, 40 yeah. years old is old. So yeah. I got to the point where I beat him six love in no time, right? So in my mind, oh good, I'm done. I don't have to play him anymore, right? My dad goes, oh yeah, you're playing a match tomorrow. Are you gonna start with a handicap? So I started at love 15 yeah. every game. I still beat him quite handily. Went to love 30. Yep. Went to love 40. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who you play. You're down love 40. You better keep your focus because you're going to lose. Yep. And yeah, and I, I lost to him in the beginning. And I was frustrated because I guess I was quite competitive because I, I just, you know, uh, because he's a hacker, right? I mean, I'm not, I, he's so anyways, but um, yeah, credit to my dad. He found ways to find a way to get me to compete there's there's always constraints that can be put in there you know and that it's, it's about being creative patricia i um we're gonna have to speak another time because um i've just looked at my sheet and <laughs> we basically we no, they, no this is amazing and i'm not letting you go yet but there's a couple of things i want to jump into so I'm going to have to leave a couple of topics that I would still love to get your thoughts on because, and, and we'll have to do it another time. It's, 
for me this is fascinating and genuinely i could talk to you for hours so this is <laughs> this is this has been lovely for me and and i'm sure for everyone listening as well but you you as a player I have to ask you a couple of fun things because, you know, you were a serious tennis player. You know, we're not talking about um, some someone like me who pretended to play tennis and <laughs> pick up a few points and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You were a serious, serious tennis player, you know, making a quarterfinals of a US Open as in, in singles, you know, semifinals of a, of a, of a doubles Grand Slam. You mentioned earlier you played Monica Sellers. You you came across Steffi Graf as well on the court. You know, like big super super superstars of our game. So, who who was your toughest opponent and why? Uh, my toughest opponent was Jennifer Capriati. Right. Okay. Do you remember the Golden Child? She was sixteen. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> She won about every WTA event. She was like 16, 17, I don't know. And then she won the gold medal yes. um, at the Olympics. Yes. And um, I played her in New York at the US Open third round. Okay. That was that was a very, very tough situation. Anytime you play an American at US Open, you're playing against a country. <laughs> you, you're not just playing. You're playing the country. And I remember that match. I was so nervous. And... And because of her age, because of the crowd, because of everything, it was a situation, you know, you had the US Open and your third round and I wasn't having a great year that year, I remembered uh, coming from like the Olympics where I lost 10 match points to Mary Jo Fernandez. <laughs> uh, so definitely coming into I was not in my greatest um, uh, tennis level. But I played her and I I, st I remember going in because I had a really bad experience before where uh, the year before I was I had food poisoning and then I had to play Sabatini on the, on the stadium. I played my worst, absolute worst match. So now I'm going in a third round again. So you just remember these things, right? And all I remember was like, I mean, I can feel it now. Like the, the, the stadium is going to rock against me. That's all yeah. I remembered. So I step on the court. And I couldn't feel my arms. I, I was so nervous. But then something happened, Dan. This is, I pretended that the stadium was for me. I pretended so hard. I'm like, okay, every time I hear the clap, they're clapping for me. So I was in this Good. dream like, and I, I, yeah, I pulled up the biggest upset um, in, in my journey. And that's what it's because of the situation playing a player who is supposed to win the US Open. Yep. And then the situation in itself, and then that will come down as my greatest fear that I overcame. And and such a clever way. Uh, we're learning all the time, right? And and at the at the US Open this year with Gabby, I know you know Gabby, Gabby Dabrowski, mm -hmm. who, who I'm working with, yep. and then and then Erin Routliff, they were stepping out under Arthur Ashe for the final of the women's doubles. And I mean, they did an amazing job, you know, to be able to, to handle that pressure as they had actually previously against Townsend who had the crowd in a frenzy at the U S open. But what Gabby said is before the match, what she did is, and I would like to take the credit for this, but I can't, this is, this is, <laughs> <You should. laughs> this is, this is 100% Gabby. She said, I just imagined that because they were playing under the roof, I just imagined that we were playing a first round US Open and it had rained 
and they'd moved us from the outside courts. Now, a few years earlier, that had happened to her. She'd actually played a first-round match at the US Open on, on Arthur Ashe under the roof because it had rained. And I must admit, I had the I had the thought process of, I mean, one, fair play to you. Two, is it that easy to trick the brain? You know, like, because it's one thing to say, oh, just imagine that it's that. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, the way the brain can work, if you try and control it, it's, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's the final. It's the final. Mm -hmm. It's the fact, you know, like, so, so talk me through that from you, like your ability to trick the brain and, and now in the work that you're doing, is that something that you would teach your clients? Is that something that you, that you believe is a legitimate technique to be able to use in the, in the most pressurized of situations to be able to trick the brain that it's actually, it's a different situation than it actually is. And how do you overcome that little voice that starts to tell you that it's not? Tricking the brain is the thing that I, I used all the time and it was not taught to me. It, I just found yeah. it on my own. But like we were saying earlier, you know, these days kids are fed with so much information. They don't think for themselves too much, but I was given a lot of space uh, to think for myself. Another technique that um, is with practice, I used to get really nervous when I was ahead, closing out the match, Yeah. right? I would pretend I was behind. Yeah. I would pretend. I, I would That's a big that. one, yeah. Yeah, I use that a lot to the point, yeah. as long as you don't, don't lose a score, but yet there's an umpire, so you're not going to lose a score. But it is a trick of the mind that, you know, I, I, this is how I explain it to my clients, right? There is the brain and then there's the mind. The difference, the brain is obviously for survival. You're born with a brain, right? The mind, see the mind as the software. Yeah. The brain is the hardware. The mind is the software, is what you program in is what is going to come out. What are you focusing on? I'm focusing on the crowd is for me. The crowd is for me. And then you shut everything out because if you don't specifically direct your focus to a certain point, it's going to go wild. I could not afford to let my, my mind go wild because I would be so nervous hearing things. And we hear about athletes being in the zone and it's true. When you're in the zone, you're in this bubble and it takes work. It's you convincing you basically. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And you, like you said, you know, people cannot convince you. If you can convince you, it's you playing indoors is my first round. You go with that and you stick with that. And I could definitely relate to Gabby with that. Yeah. And um, by the way, I was commentating at the U.S. Open. Actually, I covered uh, Gabby's match against Townsend and Fernandez. Oh, did you? I did. It was really, really fun. It was absolutely spectacular how they came back and won that match because Townsend and Fernandez had it. They they were on the roll. Ooh, they yeah. were on the roll. Yeah. Right and about. then they turned it around. Yeah. They And then Gabby and Aaron just turned it around. But anyways, I hope I answered that question about tricking your mind. It is, I, I do work with um, my client just like, you know, and I will say this, I try different techniques, different tools, because that's what it is. Um, some, some of them couldn't do it. They would, yeah. I, I would say, try it out in practice. Don't try it out in a match, yeah, try yeah. it in a practice. And they, and, and the feedback was like, she, she couldn't do it. And no, it's absolutely fine. 
And then we work on a different, we keep looking at what works. And one thing that I, the players really like is the reset button, by the way. Yeah. The reset button um, where I get them to find an object, an object yeah. where it can snap them back into the moment because it is the same thing about the mind, keeping the focus in that bubble so they're in the zone more. So can you give us an example of that? Um, the latest one is uh, for female players. It's the hair tie, right? Okay. So I will have her go into a shop and find her favorite color, yep. right? Put it on her wrist, on her arm, a, a little bit like Bianca Andreescu when she had that thing on her arm. Yes. Do you remember? So this is, yep. So the, the thing is, so at certain point when she feels nervy or stress, snap at it snap at it five times and count one two three four five and the purpose of that is to stay in the moment very good right but i would like you to i'm smiling because if you were working with a 16 year old dan kiernan who used to get very stressed and angry when he played mm -hmm. coaches tried it with me where mm -hmm. so this was what 27 years ago to put an elastic band, so not a hair tie, but an elastic band around my wrist. And what I was told, and it was actually, it was with a mental coach, Pete Terry. And I hope if Pete ever hears this, I hope you're well, Pete. It's a long time. And I apologize that we all started laughing when you told us to think of the color red when we when we did the mental training session as a group. We were, we were boys, we were 14, 15, and we were very immature. So I do apologize. However, this, I got so angry and this thing, the whole idea was that I gave myself a little, just a little pull of the band and it would snap me back into the press. So that, that, that was the thought process. However, I got so angry that I got, and I really pulled it and it came back. It smacked into my wrist, blood went everywhere and the band fell off. Um, so now I ended up with a really bad wrist. Now, I don't know if you can do that with a hair tie, but it, it was something. And I, and I guess it's what works for who, because, you know, going back to the story of the tricking of the mind, I don't know if that would work for me. I think it's a really skillful mind to be able to do that. I think you've you've got to have real skill. The elastic band didn't work for me, but there is something out there that obviously works for everybody, you know, and it's yeah. it's it's a it's a fascinating part of the sport or, or part of life. And it's something I certainly completely love. You know, I love I've worked with lots of sports psychologists as a coach over the years. I love conversations about it. I think it's just such a fascinating subject. You know, one day I need to do even more education on it as well. But what got you into that? Because you, you as a, as a, as a very successful player, then as a coach, you know, running an academy, I believe with your husband, you know, what was it? And what was the, I guess the influence behind you wanting to jump more into and, and become more of a specialist in that side of the game? Well, the mental part was always my thing. Um, okay. Now that I that now that I'm doing it, because um, when I started showing up on the tour, I obviously sm I was smaller than everybody else <laughs> by yeah. size, yeah. right? And my dad always said, you know, if you want to be successful, you got to outthink your opponent and outrun your opponent. So I was always using my my head, as yep. you, if you will, to beat 
technically to beat my, my much bigger opponents. So when I went into coaching, we moved to Canada in 2015. I was at, the, at this club and I was in charge of this elite program that consisted of 23 players. And I realized every time I speak to the players or to the parents, it was about the mental stuff. It was really about engaging uh, the self, you know, how to yeah. push themselves through his things. And so in 2017, I decided I wanted to reach more people. You know, parents were having problem with, with handling uh, the tennis journey with the, the, the kids. And I would educate the parents, help the parents out. And then I noticed that parents were having problems with some of the coaches. Then I would guide, you know, so I was always bridging about you know, things. So then I said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to try this route. I'm going to come away from on-court coaching and go into the, the the mental performance coaching. I went to to UCLA for 2 years only. Yep. So, and I'm at the age where you know what my credentials is personal experience on the tour, being a parent, you know, and a, and Olympian and athlete myself. So that's my certification is life experience for myself. Because I thought about going back to school. But I mean, I'm at the age, I, I don't want to go back. So I educate myself with certifications. Like I mm. would get my hand on any certification there is online, I would educate myself. So I thought, believe it or not, I thought, I, thought um, I was so special. I'm like, oh yeah, no one's doing that, the mental performance coaching. I didn't know it was a thing. Of course it's a thing, right? <laughs> so, um, so I had one client, I reached out to somebody and then it's, so all my clients are word of mouth. So I do a nice job communicating with the coaches and the player because yep. it is it, it's the gap because sometimes th what the coaches are trying to do, I understand what they're trying to do, not necessarily the, 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 the player. They may not understand, um, especially the younger players. Um, so that's my, my gap, right? Bridging the gap between yeah. the two and then guiding the parents along on the sideline, how to be supporting the supporting role from the yeah. parents. Um, so yeah, so that that's why I went into this because I wanted to to reach the mass and not just 23 players. Very good. And and you, you, you've you touched on it there. I, I, I call it the triangle, but maybe it's a square actually if we start adding in the, the mental. I, I call it actually mental fitness coach. I'm a, I'm a big okay. believer that all tennis players will have this just like if you said, does a tennis player have an S&C coach, a fitness coach, 30 years ago, they might not have. But now you would say, well, it's crazy that they don't. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's a very similar concept. You know, you use that concept of the gym earlier, mm -hmm. of, you know, that ability to lift a heavier weight and condition yourself to tolerate more weight. And certainly my my philosophy, my view on it is it's about learning to tolerate more stress emotion but still being able to commit to things that are helpful you know and that's ultimately having a fitter mind you know and I, and I I am a big believer in 20 years that everybody will be working with a mental fitness coach just like they would be with a physical fitness coach um and and I think that stigma is being overridden more and more as we go I think actually if you if you look at the top 100 players in the world right now on the men and women's side there won't be many if any that aren't you right. know even you know even if they're not necessarily talking talking about it but one, but one of the biggest things for me through that developmental years is that triangle or, or that square, if we're bringing this in, of player, coach, and 
parent, you know, and how how important that is, you know, and that that everyone is on the same page, everyone's yeah. You know, speaking the same language, everyone's sending the same energies, the same vibes, everyone's pushing forward. As soon as there's cracks within that, that's ultimately the player misses out. You know, so what does that look like successfully? You know, if you're if you're talking about some of the most successful teams around players in developmental years, how does that triangle look and interact for, for you? Uh it, it has to be when the player's ready, the success lies in. Because this is a very interesting, what I've just come across is that everybody, because that mental, you know, the mental coach, fitness coach and all that, and the athlete checks out, believe it or not. Yeah. I find that very interesting. So the success comes in, the player has to be ready, not when the parent's ready. I agree, yeah. The, the parents has to be ready. Uh, the player has to be ready. And how you can see they're ready is they're implementing the work that yep. they, the tools they have learned, right? Um, and, and through the hard times, this is when you really see somebody is make, putting it to use. Everybody, when they're fresh, when they have enough sleep, when they're well, oh yeah, I, I, it's easy, right? Yeah, they, they flow through it. But when they're being pushed and not, and not having a great day, are they implementing what they're learning from this tool yep. on the mental tools then that's where success starts coming is it's it as a team the triangle as you will you know then there's great flow in communications between the coach the player and myself because i check in with the coach all the time yeah. because i want to make sure that the, they, they're on, on on the same or at least very similar level because some you know the gap is very minor i know we're on the same page but yep. if the coach is telling me one thing and the uh, the player doesn't because they get emotional and their assessment may not be accurate, then th th there's that big. Uh, but success comes from communications and put aside the ego. That yep. ego is important. Put aside the ego, and we got to get to work as one. Very good. And and the future for you, Patricia, you've it feels like you've not stood still you know, wearing many different hats. You mentioned the commentating, you know, you've had the academy, you're the tennis parent, your kids are still playing and playing to a very high level. You know, you're now in the in the men mental performance world. What's next for you? Ah, uh, what's next? I'm always learning. You know, that's the thing. I, I believe I'm, I'm a, a lifelong student of the mental game. I want to go out there and help and thank goodness to technology that allows me to do so to continue my work with international players or you know players where i cannot get to because i don't uh, travel with players but they do send me videos and i constantly learn and that's why i do commentating to keep me updated with the, with the what's going on because i need to see you know in order to teach i need to learn so i can teach um but at the end of the day, Dan, you know, it's really all this learning is really for me. Yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy in, in a roundabout way as I'm learning all, all, you know, how to overcome stress every day. Our lives is full of situations we have to deal with just because we get older in age doesn't mean we, we deal with it smarter. We forget things. And when I learn, when I continue to learn new ways, 
tools to help the, the, the players, I have to walk my talk. I yeah. walk my talk, right? Um, and I do have my moments. I'm not saying I'm all put together here. I do have my <laughs> moments, but what I teach comes back. What would I do? What would I say to a certain player? Then I, I do it, right? So yeah, so this is what I will continue my work with a mental performance coach uh, with, with uh, players and then continue the journey with my two kids, with my husband, co-coaching. Life is good for now. Amazing. Patricia, we have a we have a quick fire round that we always do on Control the Controllables. But before then, I just want to say to you a, a massive, massive thank you for coming on. You know, I've I've loved the conversation. I could talk to you for hours. I've said that. I hope that I do get to talk to you for a few more hours at some point, whether it's at a tournament or getting you on again. But you've been an absolutely amazing, brilliant guest. And thank you for sharing so openly and honestly. Well, thank you for having me. Um, just love the chat, love the honesty. And, you know, I just wish more people would do that because, you know, we all need a little bit of honesty that it doesn't hurt. Are you ready? Quick fire round. Sure. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Serve or return? Return. Singles or doubles? Singles. Pro tennis or college tennis? College. Roger or Rafa? Roger. Net cord or not? Net cord. Medical timeout or not? Medical timeout. Who's your favorite current top tennis player? Uh, Alcaraz. Sellers or Graf? Graf. Your favorite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. What does control the controllables mean to you? Honesty. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Allow uh, coaching. And what's the hardest role? Player, parent, or coach? Parent. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly and this this answer means that you're signing your life away <laughs> to finding this person to come onto the podcast next who should our next guest be on control the controllables our next guest um my husband <laughs> there we go <laughs> keep it in we keep it in the family we keep it in the family. Not only because he's my my husband, but he is very knowledgeable. He's coached um, on the tour, coached many, many tour players. So he's just very knowledgeable. And he's a constant learner of the game and life. Amazing. You would enjoy speaking with him. Well, I'm, I'm already looking forward to it. We'll sort it out in the next few weeks. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Patricia. Thank you so much. And take care of yourself. I'll see you at the next uh, tournament. Thank you. And has your mouth shut yet? <laughs> In astonishment, listening to that story. As Patricia was talking, I was just like, what? Wow, she she had me transfixed. And yeah, it brings up a couple of things in my head. One, just her ability to be able to talk about that almost emotionless. And it shows the power of the mind that she's been able to overcome 
those challenges. But also it brings up, and it's come up quite a few times on the podcast, this this idea of, of, of trauma. You know, do you need some form of trauma and challenge to be able to become this resilient, world-class mental athlete? Now... <laughs> We can't artificially create that, so of course not, because not everyone has had that, but it does go to show that when you are having a difficult time, and I took this on board about 10 years ago, and somebody said to me, when something bad happens, say the word good, and that's not an easy thing to do, but if you're able to do that, and you're able to then change the mindset into looking at the opportunity in adversity, there always tends to be something that comes along. And I think it's a great way for us to try and live our life. It's certainly very inspirational to see how Patricia has done that and taken that into the success that she has had. And I'm just so thankful that she shared so openly with that. And I think we'll all take so much. And then being able to take that into being a tennis parent and you know, I think another topic I'd love to just pick up on a little bit is the energy and the vibe that you have at the side of the court. I'm a big believer that you can impact matches positively and negatively just from body language, just from the way that you are with your eyes. And I thought it was really interesting what Patricia said about the smile. I'm a tennis parent. That wouldn't work with my boy. You'd be shouting at me, telling me to stop smiling. Maybe a more neutral face works for him but it's about working out what works best for your children or the players that you work with. But ultimately, having that supportive face, making sure that they feel your support at the side of the court, I thought that was a really interesting topic. And here we are now, the moving into the very final tournament of the... As I said at the, at the beginning, a big congratulations to Canada who are the Billie Jean King Cup champions and what an amazing experience for all of those girls and their captain Heidi who did a fantastic job and then everyone comes to our side of the world next week again Malaga how lucky are we we had Sevilla for the Billie Jean King Cup finals and now Malaga for the Davis Cup and I know we will be cheering on Great Britain as they take on Serbia next Thursday but also a big shout out to Finland Harry Heliavara who I've worked with this year they are bringing over 2,000 fans from Finland, so that is going to be a great atmosphere as they take on Canada. I'm going for a GB Finland final on Sunday, and may the best team win. And then maybe we have a little bit of downtime before we start thinking of Australia already. It's a great sport that we're all involved in. There's many more exciting times ahead over the next couple of weeks. And I'm sure 2024 is going to deliver as well. And that's the same on the podcast. You know, we've got lots of exciting things coming your way. In the next few days, we're going to be releasing our first podcast short. We're now 205 episodes in. And there's so many amazing episodes that maybe people have missed. And parts of episodes that we are just highly inspired and keep going back to. So we're going to be cutting some of those out and bringing them to you as well. The first one coming your way will be Valerie Condos Field, who I always say still to this day, episode 62 is probably my favourite of every single one. Uh, she's an amazing woman with amazing messages. So don't miss that. Look out for more great guests coming your way as we end up 2023. But a big shout out to you all. 
please, ratings, reviews, likes, shares of the podcast. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.